listening to the Bloody Bits Horror Show with your host, Eddie Diaz. <laughs> Hello everybody and welcome to the Bloody Bits Horror Show. I'm your host, Eddie the Axe Jefferson, and joining me this week is a very special guest, you, the listener. That's right, we're doing a little bit of a special episode because we have a few things that we want to celebrate. Number one, we are over 1,000 downloads so far this month alone. And that's not counting iTunes or Spotify because I can't get really good analytic data from them. Um, So, But from what I'm seeing, we're doing great. We're uh, kicking ass all over the place. And I got to thank you guys for that because clearly you're going out and you're telling other people. I... The only kind of advertising we have is, is, is word of mouth, so that's that's all you guys, and, and I definitely appreciate it. The second thing I wanna I wanna kind of thank you for is that we hit our first goal on the Patreon, which is to pay for hosting. It's not a lot, but it 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 feels good because this is a passion project for me that I've been wanting to spin up for for quite a long time, and. I see you guys love it. You guys are interested and God, we're getting so many like five star, just positive reviews. And every time I see that, it's encouraging to me. So even if you can't afford to do the Patreon thing, I understand times are are rough right now. Just go ahead and share it with a friend or or give us a five star review. It all helps. It really does. And I want to share with you what we have going on on the Patreon. So I'm doing a little bonus episode where I can share that. On the Patreon, we have a radio station, kind of the pirate signal that's being broadcast coast to coast, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, In the beta, I'm calling it 69.420 The Axe. That's one of my stupid names, you know. Uh, but, But the idea is that it's going to be streaming all sorts of different horror content directly from me to your eardrums whenever you feel like tuning in. And so far, it's been going great. Um, We're doing a lot of the Best of Art Bell, Coast to Coast AM, for you conspiracy theorists, you ghost lovers, you alien people, you conspiracy seekers. It's it's one of the best. And there's countless hours of content of it. And, and, oh, man, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun to listen to. But... I'm building up an archive of personally my favorite content, which is the old-time radio horror dramas. So that's what I wanted to share with you guys today, is three hand-picked selections from three old-time radio horror dramas. So I think we'll start with the first one, and that's a little show called Nightfall. This is episode 32 of Nightfall from CBC Radio, titled The Room, written by Graham Haley, adapted from the Beyond Midnight episode of The Yellow Room by Michael McCabe, and inspired by the H.G. Wells short story, The Red Room. Please enjoy. He 
in the dream. You are falling, lost in the listening distance, as dark locks in. <laughs> Nightfall. Good evening. I would like to reassure those listeners with tendencies towards claustrophobia that tonight I will be especially careful to take care of them. The play, adapted from a Michael McCabe short story by leading player Graham Haley, is called The Room. Welcome. <laughs> Mr. Todd? Ice? Uh, thank you, Miss Watts. Miss Miss Watts, Mr. Todd. Oh, I'm sorry. There you are. Hmm, thank you. It pleases me to see a man save a whiskey. <laughs> does it, Miss... Sorry, Mrs. Watts. It does. <clears throat> My late husband, the Major, was partial to it. Husband? Yes. Uh, do I look like a spinster? No, no, not at all. You seem determined to make me one. I am a widow. I have been a widow for 22 years. Oh, I'm sorry. Alfred was also fond of a cigarette in the evening. Would you care for one? No, no, thank you. I don't smoke. As you wish. Well, uh, cheers. Yes. Mmm, it's a lovely scotch. Atlas, one of the first ever produced in Scotland and not generally available. Oh, I'm honoured. Oh, so long since I've been able to offer my whiskey. I've had that bottle for more than 20 years. Poor Alfred was the last one to drink from it. <coughs> he died the next day. Oh, really? Yes, ironic. What do you mean? The day before he died, he had a violent argument with Father Doyle. That's a long story. Suffice to say, the Major renounced his faith. But why do you say it was ironic? Well, he couldn't receive the last rites, could he, poor dear? Now then, are you willing to spend a night in the yellow room, Mr. Todd? An unlikely partnership in ghostly research. Ronald Todd and Amelia Watts. He, young, brash, and very broke. She, old, self-serving, and wealthy. One could, in fact, well say that four walls are all they have in common. Uh, Mrs. Watts, could I just get one or two things straight? Of course. I gather it's haunted, the yellow room. <laughs> so they say. Uh, who says? People. But nobody's ever stayed there all night? Oh, yes, they have. Oh, then... Do you remember the sixth Duke of Wallingford? Or was that before your time, Mr. Todd? Duke of... Oh, yes, of course. The, the family bribed some famous psychiatrist to certify that the Duke was perfectly sane, but just the same, he was as mad as a hatter. Quite mad. But he was as sane a man as one could wish to meet once. But that was before he spent the night in the Yellow Room. You mean he... Uh, the Duke... haunted and the haunted... 
Every Man's History of Ghosts and Ghosting. He wrote those books, Mr. Todd. He lived and dreamed the spirit world. He was a, a hunter of ghosts. And he came here? He came. He stayed in this house, in the North Wing, in the Yellow Room. One night he spent six and a half hours there. By morning, he was quite mad. Then there was Captain Bletchford of the 4th Hussars. He was found in the rose bushes, 40 feet below, left through the window. Help yourself to whiskey, Mr. Todd. There were others who stayed in this room but saw nothing, because I believe they were not alone. It only happens, you see, when a person is entirely alone. What... what is it that... My dear Mr. Todd, if I knew that, I would not be offering £1,000 to any man who could provide me with the answer. I see. No one who has spent a night in the yellow room has been the same the next morning. Transformed. Mrs. Watts, um, I must tell you, I'm not impressed by psychic research and I have no superstition. You are brave. I'm an atheist. So are the others. You mean... The Duke and Captain Bletchford. Well, I, I wasn't always. I was brought up a Christian. Uh, now I'm uncommitted, I'm afraid. You're afraid? <laughs> Just a figure of speech. I, I'm not afraid. For a thousand pounds, I'll spend a night anywhere. I see. One thing, though. If nothing happens, I'll have nothing to tell you, will I? Well, in that case, you will receive £100 just for your trouble. Not an unreasonable fee for eight hours sleep, Mr. Todd. Uh, no, but... Uh, but I warn you, if nothing happens, don't invent. I shall know. I am an honourable man. Good. Well, having settled that... I, I wonder if you'd mind telling me just why you're so curious, Mrs. Watts. What do you want to find? I am an old woman. I have lived a long and wonderful life. But soon I shall die. I hope not. If I should be taken tomorrow, God forbid, I would go to my grave, a disappointed woman, never knowing what evil dwells in the yellow room. There's going to be a storm. Yes, yes, the air is stifling. Um... Why haven't you spent a night in the yellow room yourself, Mrs. Watts? Ten years ago, I did. I went into the room and locked the door, had my rosary with me. Unlike yourself, Mr. Todd, I have a very strong faith. And? After 15 minutes, I unlocked the door and let myself out. Why? Mr. Todd, I did not ask you here to question me. And may I remind you that you have come to earn, if you can, a thousand pounds? Yes. For that sum, you have a job to do. Quite right. After the job is finished, I shall question you. That is our working arrangement. Would Sunday suit you? Yes, Sunday will suit me fine. After all, you won't be in church. But you must meet Father Doyle. Oh, one thing I forgot. I shall lock the door to the yellow room once you are inside and settled. It will not be opened again until eight o'clock on Monday morning. No matter what happens.
yes. It's an obsession with Amelia Watts, the yellow room. She dreams of it incessantly. But even in her dreams, she's never been able to peer through the layers of faded wallpaper into the room's terrible secret. But enough of introductions. Let's find out for ourselves. So, this is it. This is it. A bit mouldy, I'm afraid. Anything more I ought to know about it? Well, we're having some problems with the wiring. Oh, how I curse electricity. There are more devastating forces in the world than electricity, Mrs. Watts. Oh, Father Doyle, don't look so disapproving. After all, candles are much more reliable. I'll rely on candles, then. Well, for a night at least. You'll have to go back to those gracious far-off times, Mr. Todd. Yes, indeed. I'm still hoping to persuade Mr. Todd to change his mind. It's an unholy experiment you're indulging in. Now, don't begin all that over again, Father. He is free. He is over 21. What on earth is there to harm him? Nothing on earth. Now, stop being an old maid, Father. What neither of you seems to appreciate is the existence of evil. Poppycock, of course I know that evil exists. But I have experienced evil. I know how it works. The devil is afoot. He is. Don't grin, Mr. Todd. I ask both of you, because I know the history of this house, to seal the door, to lock and bar the yellow room. <clears throat> Father, you seem to forget that Mrs. Watson and I have an agreement, a uh, wager, if you like, for this one night. I'd rather you didn't persuade Mrs. Watson to seal the door just yet. Tomorrow, fine. But there's a small question of a thousand pounds in cash first. Then you can do what you like. I only hope you know what you're doing. I also know the room's past. And I don't doubt that whatever you say happened to the Duke and Captain... What's his name? Yet I can't accept that anything but their own imaginations made them lose their minds or jump out of windows. I still say it's an unholy experiment. Now, now, Father. Shall we get on with Mrs. Watts? It's ten o'clock, and I've promised myself a few chapters of Evelyn War before a good night's sleep. Looks like a splendid oak bed. The sheets have been aired, and the pillow is as soft as snow. And you won't have to worry about ending up in the rose bushes. The rose bushes? We had the window barred, Mr. Todd. Well, I haven't come here for the view, have I? Now, Mrs. Watts, Father Doyle, if you don't mind, this is my room for the night. And according to you, my lady, the ghost does not walk unless the watcher is alone. beamed. The shadows are deep. Light comes from only two candles. One is behind a great oak bed, above the head of the man who sits reading a novel by Evelyn Waugh. The other candle is on a small table to the right of the door. The yellow room is deathly silent. Time for bed. Ronald Todd smiles. In imagination, he spends a thousand pounds on a multitude of wondrous things. And then, without warning, without the slightest movement of the room, the candle above his head goes out. 
Father? Ah, thank you. You're quite sure you're not hungry? Yes, thank you. Well, there's a kitchen full of food out there. I'm really not hungry at all. I enjoy watching a man eat. Yes, yes. Uh, hearty male appetite. Well, a man should have one. Uh, speaking of the other male, our friend upstairs, uh, shouldn't he be told to go home now? What? He's been up there two hours already. He's not completed his bargain yet, Father. But if he's going to be afraid, he'll have been afraid by this time. And if he's all right now, he'll be all right six hours later. Let him out, Mrs. Watts. Father, I am not paying Mr. Todd for being afraid or for not being afraid. I am paying him to sleep in the yellow room and to find out what caused the deaths of four people and drove three others insane. Four deaths? Well, you know perfectly well. I know nothing of the kind. The fellow who threw himself out of the window. Father Doyle, what does it matter how many have died in Chansford? They were all free citizens, all of them old enough to vote. I never knew there were four. Father Doyle, where are you going? I think I'll go out and see how Mr. Todd's making up. You will do nothing of the kind. Come away from that door. May I have your permission to go up and see Mr. Todd? Do I have to ask you to leave, Father? My, my, Mrs. Watts. How authoritarian. Father, you and I are old friends, aren't we? We are. But I don't see what that has to do... Don't you? Do I have your permission to check on Todd? You do not. Then I think you'd better order me from your house. Very well. Will you kindly leave? I don't really know what you're doing. But I warn you, if something evil happens tonight and there's an inquiry, I shall be bound to say what I know. What do you mean, an inquiry? Knowing full well there are evil forces in the North Wing, you hired a stranger to spend a night. I do whatever I choose in my own Only home. Only if it does not harm other human beings. In this house I have complete freedom. You're not exercising freedom. It's license. Bribing that young man with money. Oh, for God's sake. There's nothing to harm him. It was all in their imagination, every one of them. All merely imagination, eh? And what can Mr. Todd possibly tell you that's reliable? He can tell me what he experiences. Or imagines he experiences. Father, do atheists sleep well? Head revisited by candlelight. I wonder if the spooky setting gives one extra edge. What? The candle at the right of the doorway goes out. Strange. Well, must be a draft. We'll soon fix that. The candle behind the bed goes out. Damn, it's pitch black. He begins to feel his way around the wall. Brushes against a switch. Try it. 
the light, it works. And she said the wiring of lamp shattered. She must have been right about the wiring. I think I'll forget it and go back to bed. Watching music. Sounds like... Oh, come on, Todd. Just light a bloody match. Yeah, that one's lit. And now the candle behind the bed. But before he reaches the bed, the room is shrouded in darkness as the candle by the door is again extinguished. Oh, ruddy candle just blew out. Well, I don't need it anyway. Just this one. Oh. Where are the blasted matches? I spilled the whole box. music. <laughs> there, it's lighted. Just one candle in this drafty old room. <laughs> like a little nightlight Mum used to leave in my bedroom when I was a kid. Stop that damn music! I'll light it again. I wish I had that nightlight now. All right. All right. I'll play your game. Somebody else in the room, isn't there? Someone's playing music tapes and blowing the candles out. Fine. Let's leave it dark. The depth of darkness and the drumming march cut through. Oh. Try the candle with it. Again. Oh, I need a match. Light. Wet. There's been water on the floor when I dropped the box. Once more. was a brave old soldier at the Battle of Waterloo. The wind blew up his petticoat and showed his cock-a-doodle-doo. <laughs> Where's the blasted bed? Just make it back to... The bed's gone. This is crazy. What, what could it... All right, Mrs. Watts, you win. Built a trick room, didn't you? A maze with air vents and loudspeakers. Come on, Tom, get your bearings. You're an old boy scout. And in the blackness, like a blind man, he walks cautiously, his arms groping in front of him. The way feels clear. He bumps into nothing. Then... Straighten up, Todd. Look sharp. Who's that? Sloppy, Todd. Very sloppy. Smart enough, boy. Huh? What? 
Where are you? Can't have any slackness here. Come along into line. <laughs> Very good. Nice trick, Mrs. Watts. A tape machine, too. <laughs> Who's it supposed to be? Your husband, the Major? She's not listening. And there's no tape machine. But you're right on one count. I am the Major. Oh, sure. Sure, of course you are. If only I had some light. Some of us refuse to see the light. What do you mean, us? Get hold of yourself, Todd. You're talking to an empty room. Us? Those of us in purgatory, Mr. Todd. Uh, rubbish. Where are my matches? There must be a dry one somewhere. <laughs> Let go. Damn you, Major. Those are my matches. Now give them back. Do you hear me, Major? Give them back. So, you acknowledge me after all? Never. You're a fraud, whoever you are. Not a fraud. A ghost, to be precise. I don't believe in ghosts or spirits or the living dead or the devil or any of that bunk. What do you? Nothing. What's your game? What do you want? A favor. A little one. I only want your faith. I have no faith. Pity. Even if I had, I wouldn't help you. No pity. What do you want it for? Your faith for my redemption. What would it really take to redeem you? Maybe you deserve the yellow room. I will not be used. I'm getting out of here. If there is a purgatory, it must be this bloody room. Mrs. Watts, you can keep your filthy money. Open the door. I'm afraid there's no escape. Mrs. Watts! <laughs> Let me out! Might as well say your prayers. Come on, it! It's only a forty-foot drop once you've got through the bars. Who are you? Why are you hounding me? Oh, Ronald, Ronald, what would your mother say? <laughs> my, my mother? Ronald, dear, time for bed. Say your prayers for mummy. Mummy? Be a good boy now, Ronald. Say your prayers. And Mummy will give you back your toy soldiers. Mummy! Mummy! Sing, Ronald! Sing for Mummy! Ha, 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 ha.
You always were a nosy old devil, Father Doyle, uh, saving your reverence. Oh, no. You always were. You just hide your nosiness under a cross. I woke you sharp at 7.30 because I was concerned for his safety. Of course. Open the door to the yellow room, Mrs. Watts, quickly. Yes, yes, Father, be patient. Morning, Mr. Todd. Would you like some tea? Give me the keys, woman. Well, in all decency, I have to warn him we're entering. No time for niceties. a week. The old priest carries a profound sense of guilt he can never be rid of. Mrs. Watts died last year without ever discovering the secret of the Yellow Room. Transferred, her rambling old mansion on Manor Drive is to be torn down this year to make way for a shopping center. just heard The Room, the Michael McCabe story dramatized for radio by Graham Haley. Graham Haley was also featured tonight in the role of Ronald Todd, with Moya Fennick as Mrs. Watts, Colin Fox as Father Doyle, and Chris Wiggins as The Major. John Stocker was the shopping center MC, and vicarious narration was provided by your series host, the mysterious Luther Cranst. Our recording engineer is John Jessup, with sound effects by Bill Robinson. Our production assistant is Nancy McElveen, and the series story editor is Earl Toppings. Nightfall is produced and directed for CBC Radio by Bill Howell.
I hope you guys enjoyed that story because coming up next, we've got an episode of Suspense that originally aired September 16th in 1942 titled The Kettler Method. This radio play was originally written for Suspense by Peter Barry. Roger DeCoven starred as Dr. Kettler and John Gibson as Leslie Winton, actress and painter Gloria Stewart, who was best known for her role in the 1997 movie Titanic, played Claire Winton. I hope you enjoy. Will you give a few seconds of your time to help win this war? Then listen. At Stalingrad the other day, a Nazi tank unit attacked a corps of Russian soldiers. The Russians tried to stop the tanks and fought until their guns were silenced. Then did they surrender? Did they retreat? No. Eighteen of them rushed forward with bombs in their hands, got under the tanks, and blew them up. They gave their lives for their country. You and I are not asked to give our lives for ours. All we're asked to do is buy war bonds and stamps. Our American soldiers are giving their lives for us each day. More and more of them every day. Can we do less than loan our money to them? It's such a simple, easy thing to do. Out of every dollar you earn, lend one dime to your country. Do it regularly by joining the 10% club where you work. And do it now. Our soldiers need your help. Columbia Network takes pleasure in bringing you Suspense. Suspense. Columbia's parade of outstanding thrillers. Produced by William Spear and scored by Bernard Herrmann. The notable melodramas from stage and screen, fiction and radio, presented each week to bring you to the edge of your chair, to keep you in suspense. Tonight's story deals with a remote and dangerous house and a terrifying thing that happened there because the rain went on for days and days. It deals with a surgeon and a girl, a giant, and a young man who took a long chance. And over them all, the moan of the night wind and the ceaseless roar of the storm. For your suspenseful listening, we invite you to learn about Kettler method. Four days of rain had been ceaseless, teeming, pouring with a steady, relentless rhythm. Four solid days. The fields around Culston had been turned into huge puddles that reflected the heavy, swollen sky. And Dr. Morrissey was stirred by a deep anxiety. He stood beside a window in his sanitarium, which rose high on a lonely hill, 
a few miles from the little town of Culston and stared into the jagged, spraying screen of rain. It was just three o'clock. Three o'clock of an afternoon he would long remember. He was on the point of sending for Caffrey, the ward attendant, when the door opened and Caffrey came in, pale, disturbed. Dr. Morrissey. Is there anything wrong, Caffrey? I don't know. There's a feeling down in the ward. Feeling? This rain's going on too long. The patient's getting uneasy? They're bound to, ain't they? If a guy with good nerves gets jumpy, you can imagine what it does to theirs. Seem to be affecting anyone in particular? Number five's been carrying on. Kettler? Yeah. I brought him up. Nurse Carter's waiting with him out in the hall. Bad as that? He's upsetting the others. Keeps asking for some guy named Benham. Oh, that's the man he killed. I didn't know he was homicidal. Oh, it was an accident. He was performing a brain surgery on Benham and... Uh... Him? Oh, Kettler was a very important surgeon, Caffrey. Didn't you know that? He keeps saying so, but... It's, it's perfectly true. Very successful, Dr. Kettler was. Until he perfected an operative procedure that he called the Kettler method. A new process of brain operation. Spent most of his life on it and... Well, when he tried it for the first time on this young Laird Benham and Benham died on the table, it, it unbalanced his mind. I've got to go back down there now. I think you'd better wait while I talk with Kettler. Okay, I'll bring him in. But don't make it long. I don't like the feel of things around here. Nurse, Miss Carter. Yes, we're coming. You can bring him in now. Come along. Dr. Morrissey wants to see you. Does he now? Does he? Come in, Kettler. I'd like to ask Dr. Morrissey a question. I'd like to ask him a question. Yes, Dr. Kettler. I should like to ask him where Laird Benham is. I know he'll never tell me. But I will, Kettler. Laird Benham is buried somewhere out there under the rain. He is at peace, Kettler. Can't you forget about him? Just forget. You'd all like me to forget about him, wouldn't you? Then you could keep him hidden away forever, couldn't you? Benham is dead, Kettler. You know that. Benham died. He did not. He's alive. He was alive when you and the rest of the envious medical profession stole him from the operating table. Kidnapped him with my bandages still round his head. You were determined to make the Kettler method seem a failure, weren't you? Weren't you? Easy, easy now. Believe me, Kettler. I think I Benham know where died. he is now, Dr. Morrissey. He's in the cellar under the ward downstairs, isn't he? Isn't he? Kettler. Let me see it. There. Oh, you'd better take him down, Caffrey. All right. Come along now, sir. I'll take him, nurse. You won't show him to me. Even though it would make me well again. My cellars are empty, Kettler. Believe me, Benham isn't there. You sit there in power and order me away. Come on, Kettler. There's something I have to say. I've always been above violence, Dr. Morrissey. But the time comes when there's no other course. This is a warning, Doctor. A warning. And the joke is that you won't heed it. Come on with you. You won't heed it now. But you'll remember it. And soon you'll remember it. Tables turn, Dr. Morrissey. Tables turn. <laughs> Poor thing. Uh, I'm afraid I'm failing with him. Failing completely. But you're not. It takes time to put a man back together. Oh, it's taken me too long with Kettler. I'm beginning to be afraid. If you'll pardon me, Doctor. Yes? I do think you're making a mistake. With him? No, with yourself. You haven't had a real vacation in three years, Dr. Morrissey. Oh, you think I'm wearing a bit thin just now, don't you? And you're right. 
But I really can't leave my patients in anyone else's hands. Not now, at any rate. No, I'll have to make the best of it. But you need relaxation, don't I know, I know. Well, I hope to soothe my ragged nerves somewhat over this weekend. Oh? I have some friends coming down from the city Friday night. Leslie and Claire Winton. Young married couple, newlyweds. And I'm just going to relax with them and forget everything until Monday morning. You must, Doctor. You do need it so badly. Oh, by the way, Doctor. Yes? I slipped some of uh, those new sample bandages into your coat pocket. Well, thanks, thanks. I'll have a look at them. I think they're quite good. The salesman said that... Yes, nurse. What is it? Did, did you hear something? Thunder, wasn't it? Something else besides thunder. I thought it... Well, I didn't hear it. <laughs> My nerves must be getting the best of me. Perhaps it's a case of nurse heal thyself, eh? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not the only one who needs a rest. You know, it might be a very good idea if we both... <laughs> Dr. Morrissey. I heard that. What is it? It's coming from the ward. Sounds like... That was a shot, nurse. You get on the phone. Call the police at Colston. Hello? 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 Keep at it. Keep at it. Hello? Someone's trying to get in from the hall. Dr. Morrissey! Dr. Morrissey! It's Caffrey. Just a moment. Caffrey! Caffrey, what is it? It's ganged up on me. All of them are coming up the stairs. Kidler, clear out of here. Oh, oh. Steady, nurse. He's dead, isn't he? Isn't he? Yes. Dr. Morrissey. Hitler. Remember my warning. Remember it, Doctor. Tables turn, Dr. Morrissey. Tables turn. Three more days. Friday night came, black, wet, and glistening. The 815 Express groaned into Colston Station, bringing Leslie and Claire Winton out from the city with their weekend luggage. Isn't Dr. Morrissey sending his car for us, Leslie? Yes, Claire. The chauffeur was supposed to drive us over to the sanitarium to pick up the dock, and then we're all going over to his house together. Well, I don't see any car, do you? I don't see anything but water. Maybe we're rowing over in a skiff. <laughs> oh. Oh, I hate that sound. Like somebody's in agony. I think you're a little depressed, dear. Well, I shouldn't be surprised. My head's still aching dreadfully. Poor lover. How long's that been going on now? Almost a week. It, it frightens me. I don't think it's anything serious. Waiting in the rain like this doesn't do it any good, I'm sure. I don't understand. Doc's usually so punctual, right on the dot. You don't suppose we ought to call the sanitarium... You and... people, or Dr. Morrissey, yes? Well, uh, yes, yes, we're the Wintons. Doc sent you to pick us up? I, Cato, Dr. Morrissey's chauffeur. You got luggage? Um, yes. Here it is. I take. You follow me to car. Come. Uh, we're coming. Leslie? Yes? He's, he's tremendous, isn't he? 
He must be six and a half feet tall. I'm over six myself, darling. He's nearer eight. That's a giant. Get those shoulders. He could snap me in two like a matchstick. Well, I... I hope he likes us. So do I, light of my life. Ah, waiting. You come, please. But I really don't think he does. Mm -hmm. Coming. car lurched and hurtled over the rain-soaked roads, tearing wildly through the dark and careening up the hillside toward the stark walls of the sanitarium. It skidded to a standstill in front of the main entrance, and cold black Cato led them inside. The brightly lit corridors were deserted, silent, like hallways in a nightmare. Claire was aware of her headache growing steadily worse as Cato opened the double doors and ushered them into the waiting room. You'll tell Dr. Morrissey we're here, huh? Doctor, be with you soon. You do not go away. Yes, uh, thanks. I hope we're not staying in here very long. It isn't very cheery, is it? Oh, I don't like places like this. I suppose it's very foolish of me, but... But I always feel as if I'm in some sort of danger. That's the headache again. Everything seems worse than it really is when you're not feeling well. Don't you always find... Leslie. Yeah? Listen. What is it? Somebody's knocking. Just a moment. Gracias, adios. Who is it, Leslie? I, I don't know. What? You do not know me. I am Arturo Alvarez, the South American pianist... You have heard of me? Well, sure, I've heard of Arturo Alvarez, but I'd hardly expect to find him in... Leslie, humor him. Oh, of course, for a moment I forgot where I was. I've uh, heard of you, Mr. Alvarez. Is there anything I can do for you? Will you help me? I must get out of this place. Oh, sure. I came here several days ago to be treated for a mild nervous trouble. And now, now they won't let me go. I am being held a prisoner... And tonight I am scheduled to give a concert at Carnegie Hall, and I must get out of here. Please, will you help me? Ah, number ten out of the ward again, I see. How many times must I tell you that that is strictly against the rules? I was doing nothing wrong. I was only telling this gentleman that I must be at Carnegie Hall for my concert. Yes, yes, yes. I'm sure the gentleman was very interested. Uh, Cato. Yes, uh, doctor. Cato, you will escort number ten back to the ward and see to it that he doesn't wander back into the waiting room. No, no, I will not be taken back to the ward. Help me. Oh, no. Help me. Oh. No. Oh. No. No. Oh. I will no. No. Uh, how strongly he believes in his delusion strange fantasy of a diseased mind. Seriously believes that he's Arturo Alvarez. He was telling me. Oh, I, I'm very sorry. I'm afraid I haven't been very cordial. Uh, won't you sit down? Is there anything I can do for you? Well, you see, Dr. Morrissey invited us up for the weekend. Oh, yes, of course. He told me he was expecting you. Does he know we're here? I'm afraid not. Uh, Dr. Morrissey was unexpectedly called away on an emergency case, and I'm in charge of the sanitarium until he returns. Well, do you have any idea about when that'll be? Well, it's very hard to say. However, he asked me to ask you to wait and see to it that you're made comfortable. Uh, let me see now. Your name is... Winton. Uh... Leslie Winton. And uh, this is my wife, Claire. Ah, yes. Uh, permit me to introduce myself. I'm Dr. Kettler. Dr. Morrissey's assistant. 
Doctor, what can I do for you? A bite of food or a drink, perhaps? I don't think so. There's nothing in the world I want so much as an aspirin. Aspirin? Yes, Doctor. She's had a headache that's been troubling her for days. It's terribly annoying. I can well imagine. Annoying and interesting. That is, to a man of my profession, of course. But if you will step into the inner office, I think I can offer you something a good deal more effective. Oh, I hate to trouble you. No trouble at all. I find these things most intriguing. Should I, Leslie? I think you might as well. Morrissey won't be back for a long time by the looks of things. You're quite right, Mr. Winton. Dr. Morrissey won't be back for a long, long time. Oh, well, then, uh, which way do I go? Right this way, the large door on your left. You won't mind waiting alone, will you, darling? Oh, Mr. Winton shall make himself comfortable. There are cigarettes in the box, whiskey in the liquor cabinet, and a radio behind the ferns there. I'm sure he will be quite happy. Uh, after you, Mrs. Winton. If Dr. Morrissey comes in, let me know. I hope you'll find everything you want, sir. Thanks. Uh, by the way, Doctor. Yes? You said you had something better than aspirin. I didn't know there was anything better than aspirin for a headache. I have something, Mr. Winton. Really? It is a process which I invented myself. One that never fails. A little treatment, very effective and highly complicated, called the Kettler Method. Please make yourself at home, Mr. Winton. Leslie sat there, alone in the big waiting room for a while. Then creeps began setting in, and he thought to himself, Maybe I'll have that drink after all. He rose and went over to the liquor cabinet that Kettler had pointed out to him and opened it. Well, there's nothing in here but books. Yes, books. Books that were so thick with dust that it was clear they'd been there for months. Well, no drink for Leslie. Maybe a cigarette. Kettler said the box was full. He picked it up and started opening it. Why, it isn't even a cigarette box. The darn thing's a bookend. Yes, that's just what it was. Leslie began to think it was a tough job making himself at home in that waiting room. And then the idea occurred to him. Maybe the radio works. He went over to the radio then, turned it on, and... We are sorry to announce that the program scheduled for this time from Carnegie Hall has been canceled due to the mysterious disappearance of Arturo Alvarez, the noted South American pianist. Mr. Alvarez was known to be suffering from a minor nervous disorder and was last seen departing on a short trip to Colston in upstate New... Alvarez. That guy is Alvarez. What's going on here? Claire! Claire! Locked. Dr. Kessler, open this door. Open it. Do you hear me? Miss Claire. Winton. Oh, you. Tell him to open up. Tell him. Tell him. Doctor, send me. Tell you, young lady, headache bad. Very bad. What do you mean? He operate. Operate? He say take long time. He say, you not wait. You come back tomorrow. Operate. No, no. Kessler, Kessler. Claire, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Of course she can hear you, Mr. Winton. The operating table is just inside the door. Bring her out here. Let her go, I tell you, Kettler. But I find that an operation is indicated, Mr. Winton. I forbid you to touch her. You forbid? You? I'm in charge here. No one forbids me. Do you understand? You're insane. You're... If you lay your hands on her, I'll kill you. So help me, I'll kill you. Very well, Mr. Winton. 
you do not wish me to operate, that's all there is to it. I would scarcely force my services upon you. However, the girl's condition is quite serious, and I... <coughs> ah, good work. Good work, Cato, my boy. A masterstroke. <laughs> do you still forbid me, Mr. Winton? Do you? Do you? Oh, you don't answer. Good, good. Take him to the cellar, Cato, and lodge him there with his friend, Dr. Morrissey. They should have a good deal to talk over in the still hours of the night while I cure the young lady's headache unmolested. You've got to pull yourself together, Leslie. Now try. Try to think. Cato brought you down a few moments ago. You've been hit in the head. Can you remember? Yes. I was talking to Kettler, trying to make him let Claire go. Claire? Oh, good Lord, Morrissey. Where is she? He's got her. Kettler? She's on that operating table up there. We've got to do something. We've got to do something. Well, I'm afraid there's not much we can do. I've been here for three days and nights. What happened? Uh, it was a nightmare come to life. I'd had Kettler in my office for treatment. Yeah? He was off on a wild tangent, insisting that I had a man whom he had killed hidden down here in the cellar. That I and the rest of the medical profession had kidnapped him off the operating table with his head still swathed. He thinks I've been keeping this venom from him all along, even though I've known that just one side of him would cure his mental disorders. He hates me with every fiber of his twisted brain. It's a dangerous case, Leslie. He'll... he'll kill Claire? He may. There's a slim chance he won't. What's that? Well, all the surgical instruments are locked away. It's possible they may not be able to find them. Isn't there any way we can get out of here? Well, wouldn't I have used it? Where does that corridor lead to? To the staircase that goes to the first floor. Well? Not a chance. It comes out in the operating room and they keep that door locked as tight as a drum. Besides, Kettler still has the pistol he took from my nurse. I've got to think. I've got to. And my head hurts so I can't make good sense. Let's see that. I think they gave you a nasty cut. Oh, it doesn't matter. Say, Doc. Yes? What was his name? Who? The guy Kettler thought you were keeping from him, the one he killed. Benham. Laid Benham. Why? Was he a young fellow? Yes, a rather tall, slender chap. Say, Doc, hmm? do you have any bandages down here? What? Bandages. Why, yes, I think so. They're, they're stored down here. Enough to bandage my whole head, face, and everything? Why? I might have a chance of getting through that door up there. <laughs> Let me go now. Oh, let me go. Leslie! Leslie! You will be better soon. Much better. I will take the pain away, Mrs. Winton. Cato, have you found the surgical case? Not found yet. I look. Cato, look. Find it. We must not keep Mrs. Winton in an agony. Find it, I say. She'll have to create some order in this place. I want my instruments at hand on a moment's notice. Please, let me go. Oh, let me go! You shall be well again, my dear. I promise you, you shall be. Doctor, here, tall, white cabinet behind curtain. That's it. Open it. Open it, Cato. Locked. Locked, Doctor. Smash it open. Open it. I do. You'll find scalpels on the top tray. Bring them to me. Yes, Doctor. It's here, Doctor. See, knives. Good, sharp knives. Cato find. He find them. Excellent. How they glitter. Ah, uh, it is good to feel the knife in my hand again. 
Put the others right beside my pistol here on the table. Please. Oh, please. There, there, my girl. I shall expend all my genius on you. You shall be well again. No. 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 Now to work. What was that? Who's there? Dr. Ketler. Who is it? I have found my way back to you. Open the door, Dr. Kettler. I've come back again. Who are you? You remember? You remember Laird Benham? Cato! Cato! Yes, Doctor. The door! The door! Let him in! He's come back! Let him yes, in, I say! Yes, Doctor. Oh, let me out of here! He's come back! He's come back, Cato! Benham, I knew it. I knew it all along. You're alive. You're living. Yes. Living. Yes, Dr. Kettler. You. Just as they took you from the table. Yes. They took me away before the operation was complete. Finish it now. Hurry. I can't live much longer. I'm about to die. No, no. Cato, get Benham out of the table. Girl, girl on table. Take her off. Take her out of here. Put her in the uh, cellar. Let Benham take a place. At once, you hear? Yes, Dr. Cato. No, no, I won't be put in the cellar. I won't. It might be well if you went down into the cellar, you know. It's nice down there. You'll see old friends, perhaps. Old friends who need help. Leslie. Hurry, hurry, I say. Yes, Doctor, come. I'm coming. Are you all right, Benham? Weaker. Weaker. Cato, Cato! Cato, close door. No, stop wasting time. Leave the door alone. Help me. Help me get Benham on the table. Yes, Doctor. Cato, do. Oh, that's right. Now, lift him carefully. Ah. Good. Now, lie back. Lie back. Gently. Gently. All right. Careful now. There we are. Cato, give me the knife. Yes, Doctor. Take off the bandages. Hmm. From the top, Cato. Uh, That's correct. That's proper procedure. There. Yeah, now that's... Hmm. I thought his hair was blonde, not black. Well, perhaps I've forgotten. I've forgotten so many things that... There was a scar on his forehead. I, I clearly remember a scar on his forehead. It, maybe, maybe I imagine that too. Perhaps it was someone else who. Brown eyes. Benham. Benham, didn't you have blue eyes? I know they were blue. And your nose. Your nose was thinner and longer. Yeah. Yes. And your lips. You had thick lips. That I know. Bandages off, Doctor. Dr. Kettler, there's a trick here. You... You're not Benham. You're not Benham. You're that young Mr. Winton. Dr. Kettler, listen to me. Cheat. Cheat. So you wanted me to finish you, did you? Yes, Mr. Winton, I will. I will. Hold him, Cato. Uh, hold him. See the knife, Mr. Winton? Watch it glisten as it comes down, 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 and into it. <laughs> <laughs> 
don't doubt that he's Arthur Alvarez when you hear him play the piano, do you? That's a marvelous old instrument you have, Doc. It was my mother's. This old house has been in the family for generations. Mm. Who'd ever thought we'd be alive to sit in your house and listen to somebody play a concerto? We wouldn't have been. At least I wouldn't have been if you hadn't snatched that revolver off the table right out from under Kettler's nose before they threw you into the cellar. That was the lifesaver. Made the weekend perfect. <laughs> I'm afraid it wasn't very restful. Hereafter, I'm spending all weekends in a cozy little corner under the L. <laughs> ah, it was worse for Claire than anybody. She had a dreadful time. It was ghastly, all right. Horrible. But you know something? What? My headache. It's completely gone. Kettler method, the tale of a memorable weekend and a long-awaited dead man who didn't return after all. This was tonight's story of Suspense. Suspense is produced by William Spear. John Dietz was our director this evening. Tonight's radio drama was written by Peter Barry and scored by Bernard Herman. Roger DeCoven was Dr. Kettler, John Gibson, Leslie Winton, and Gloria Stewart played Claire Winton. Others in the cast were Guy Rep, Martha Faulkner, Winfield Honey, and Ralph Smiley. Next week at this time, Columbia will bring you another selected story from the world's great literature of thrills. Another study in... Suspense. This is Barry Kroger, and this is the Columbia Broadcasting System. Now, for our final presentation, I bring you an episode of the radio drama Lights Out. This episode is titled The Dream, and it originally aired March 23rd of 1938. It was written and directed by Arch Obler, and it features the voice work of one Boris Karlov. Good night. Tonight is the fourth anniversary of Lights Out. After four years of fantasy and imagination, chills and thrills, Lights Out celebrates by bringing to the microphone the internationally known actor whose name has become synonymous with the unusual and fantastic. The National Broadcasting Company takes pleasure in presenting Boris Karloff in the first of a special series of Lights Out broadcasts. Lights out, everybody.
Tonight, Lights Out presents another psychological drama. A play in which the principal part is taken not by the character himself, but his thoughts. The voice you are about to hear is that of the thoughts of one Daryl Hall, accused murderer, sitting in a courtroom awaiting the return of a jury, which is to decide whether he is to live or die. And as he waits, the thoughts in his mind seethe and swirl. Seethe and swirl. Seethe and swirl. Not guilty. Guilty. Not guilty. Guilty. Father in heaven, why don't I stop thinking those words? Words those jurymen are saying. He's not guilty. He's guilty. Not guilty. Guilty. Not guilty. No, no, I've got to stop thinking of what's going on in that room. The jurymen. I've got to stop thinking of them. I've got to keep my head clear. I've got to figure things out. When did all this start? Yes. I remember. That night, Wayne and I were sitting in my room, talking about dreams. I remember he said... Oh, come on, Daryl. Don't expect me to believe that one. Well, I'm certainly telling you the truth. A fellow with your imagination wasting his time teaching biology to a bunch of co-ed nitwits. No, sir, you should be writing fiction. <laughs> I assure you, my dear Wayne, I've told you the truth. You're really serious? Of course I am. You actually mean that in all your life you've never had a dream? Never. Not even when you were a child? To my knowledge... I've never had a dream in all my life. Well, how do you like that? <laughs> I like it very well. <laughs> I close my eyes, oblivion, and then I wake up. No nightmare hangovers for me. Now, uh, now, wait a minute, Daryl. Let me get this straight. You mean you've never even had a dream after, uh, you know, eating a Welsh rare bit at midnight or surrounding a dozen green apples or anything like that? <laughs> Believe me, Wade. I've never had a dream of any shape form a description in all my life. A dream to me is just a word. Something that happens to other people, but not to me. But everyone must dream. Well, perhaps. But it just so happens that my subconscious doesn't work that way. I tell you again, I have never dreamt. Well, what do you know about that? Just unbelievable, I tell you. Unbelievable. Yes, that's what he said. Unbelievable. It was unbelievable that I'd never dreamt. Then after a while he went away and left me there. It was early evening. But I remember that somehow, strangely, I was very tired. I sat down in the easy chair. Oh, I was so tired. I closed my eyes. I slept. And then, then it happened. A strange murmuring in my head. Yes. That's how it started. A murmuring as if in warning. And then in, in the darkness around me, strange faces lifting and falling. White faces. Faces without hope. Their eyes full of horror. Their white bloodless lips pleading wordlessly in a way that made the heart of me cry out in pity. And suddenly... I knew I was asleep and dreaming. Yes, dreaming for the first time in my life. And these faces I was seeing were things out of a dream. And even as I knew that, the dream was gone. Blackness. 
And yet I knew that I was still asleep. And I had a terrible feeling of foreboding, of a horror to come in that dream. What? How? I didn't know. But I wanted to stop sleeping. I wanted to open my eyes quickly before. And then I saw her moving slowly toward me out of the darkness that was my dream. At first, a white wraith-like thing. And then I saw it was a woman. Yes, the body of a woman, but the face. Father in heaven, that face. Gross, unclean, thick, bestial brows, wrinkles of venery, the lecherous writhing of thin crimson lips that lifted from teeth, bite and pointed, and flecked with blood. Yes, a glorious body, and a face from hell. Closer, closer to me. And then she spoke one word. Kill. Yes, that's what she said. Kill. And as she said it, she moved closer. Her hands went out, her eyes in my dream, I screamed. I awoke. I remember. Just at that second, the clock on the mantel began striking. Five, six, seven. Thankfully, I counted each chime, since the hearing of it meant that I was awake, awake out of the horror of that dream. When the clock had stopped chiming, I sat there. My one thought was, if this be dreaming, let me never dream again. What was that? I sat still, afraid to move. And then I laughed. It was my own heart. My own heart still pounding with fright at what I'd seen in my first dream. Oh, why do I sit here thinking of what has been? The jury in there. They've got to hang me. Free him. They've got to hang me. No, no, I mustn't think of them. Better to keep my thoughts and how it all started. Better to figure things out. Where was I? Ah, yes. Sitting there, listening to the beating of my heart. Thinking of the horror of that dream. And then, suddenly, a strange wordless murmur I had heard in my dream was whispering in my head again. Quickly as it began, it was gone. How could this be? I was awake. Awake. This was no dream. Then why had I heard that wordless entreaty? That same sound that had come from those miserable white faces that had floated before me while I slept. Why? Why? Uh, I heard it. Down behind me. Who? Oh. Why, yes, my friend Wayne. Must be he. Come back into the room, standing behind my chair, thinking I was asleep. I turned round and said, Wayne, is that you? <laughs> yes. I screamed. I screamed so loudly there was blood in my throat. 
For it was she again. That woman. That woman out of my dream. But this wasn't a dream. She was standing there, I tell you. She was standing there close to me, looking at me. And those lips out of hell said that one word. You. I jumped to my feet. No one in the room. No one, I tell you. I remember standing there. My head reeling. Who was she? Where did she come from? But there was no one in the room. Had there been anyone there? I didn't sleep that night. But by morning, yes, by morning, I had it all figured out. Two dreams. That's what it had been. And the second had been more vivid than the first. Why, of course. I'd never dreamed before. So, of course, my first dreams would seem reality. How easy it was to quiet the unrest in my mind. Easy to make oneself believe what one wants to believe. And yet, some measure of uncertainty remained with me. And Mary saw it in my face when I had dinner with her that night. Daryl, do you mind if I ask you something? What, what a question. Of course not. Is there something wrong? Do you mean with the dinner? Well, you know, this is my favorite restaurant. With you, dear. Has something gone wrong at the university? Why do you ask that? The worry in your eyes. Oh. What is it, dear? Oh, it's nothing. It's nothing important. You changed your mind about loving me? Mary. Then tell me what it is, please. All right. It's really nothing to concern yourself over. Just a... a dream. Dream? Daryl, you dreamed. Yes. Last night. How marvelous. Now you're normal even when you sleep. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, isn't it? I'm back to normal, see, I'm <laughs> And here I thought from the expression on your face that it was something really important. <laughs> Funny, isn't it? And I suppose in your first dream you dreamt of a... <laughs> Glorious, seductive woman. No, Mary. Ah, did you have a nightmare? If you don't mind, let's let's not talk about it anymore. Shall we have our dessert now? Now, I suggest the hot green apple pie with cheese. Daryl, was it as bad as all that? Horrible. Oh, that's cruel. Your very first dream, an unhappy one. Oh, well, I'm sure that if you dream again, you've more interesting times ahead. Oh, dear, look at the time. A minute to seven, and we promised the Armstrongs we'd pick them up at 7.15. Daryl, what is it? Your face. Do you hear it? Hear what? You do hear it, don't you? The voices. What? Daryl, what are you talking about? Well, the people in this restaurant are most well-behaved. Just the way it was before. Daryl, please, if this is a joke, please tell it to me. <gasps> Daryl, what is it? What are you staring at? What's behind my chair? What's there, Daryl? Tell me what's behind. Daryl, the table. Daryl, why did you throw over the table? Daryl, what is it? What is it?
Mary thought I was overworked. Oh, no, darling, you've been working so hard. Go home and rest, dear. That's all you need, rest. Rest, rest. What good was rest? I had to reason things out. All my life I'd lived with reason, and now this, this horror. I had to know all about it. Now, I was certain it was no dream. What I had seen there in the restaurant had been no thing of sleep. Hallucination. Yes, that was it. I had been working hard. Too much work was the answer, and rest would cure that. Yes, indeed. And so I rested through the next day. It was quite dark when I awoke. The phone rang. It was Mary calling to find out how I felt. Are you sure you're all right, Daryl? Why, yes, Mary, yes. I'm fine, thank you. You sound all right. Your advice was good, dear. Apparently, rest was just what I needed. Then go along back to bed. I'll talk to you tomorrow. All right, dear. Thanks for calling. Goodbye, Daryl. Sleep well tonight. I hung up the receiver. And then the clock on the mantel behind me began striking. It had been seven when it had happened. And then, with the last chime of the clock, I realized it was seven again. Seven! Would I see her again? I stood there, back against the wall, waiting. So quiet, I could hear the clock ticking away the seconds. Would it happen again, this hallucination of mine? I waited. I heard no pitiful murmur of voices. no longer empty. There was someone in it. I said, who's there? Answer me, who's there? No answer. The strange darkness in the room. Deeper and deeper I could see nothing. And then two swirling pools of flame led right. Closer and closer. I stood there. I couldn't move. Fear, I tell you. Fear tearing up my brain louder and louder while those red circles of light came closer and closer. Father in heaven, what was it? What? And then I knew it was her eyes. Her eyes burning close into mine, into the brain of me, pounding one thought into me. Crazy, crazy, crazy. No! 
realization. The coldness of a wind blew around me and clutched at my heart. For if she was reality, somehow I knew that I was lost. And so it began. Night after night, at the stroke of seven. First, that wailing dirge of those lost souls. And then her writhing lips. Oh, no. Gail. Gail. 
shoulder. My sweet, gentle little Mary killed her with my own hand. I opened my hand. She fell to the floor. I went out into the street. People all around me, hurrying. I was in no hurry. What that woman had wanted, I had done. I had killed. I walked all night. It didn't matter where. And in the morning, I found myself on the campus of the school, before the very building in which a class was waiting for my lecture. I went in. I walked up on the platform and looked down into their faces. I said to them, Ladies and gentlemen, my lecture for today will be on the subject of the selective factor in the evolutionary. I stopped. A murmur in the air. Those voices again. But it was broad daylight. I'd never heard those voices in daylight before. What did they want of me? What were they saying? There was a strangeness in their pitiful voices. Yes, like... Yes, like a dirge. A dirge of tears and sorrow for someone. For me, yes. For me. And then... Her voice. Laughing. Laughing. Triumphant. Then I understood. For the first time, I understood everything. She had triumphed over me. That was why those lost souls were waving a dirge over me. I was hers. Hers forever. I turned and ran out of there like a madman. Ran, ran, and as I ran, those voices of the damned were talking to me. society for my crime, she would fail. I would be free of her, that thing, that essence of evil, that siren who called men to murder so that their souls would be slaves to her for all eternity. Yes, yes, I'd pay for my crime. I ran on, on, back to Mary's house. Yes, I'd pay it gladly with my life to have the peace of the rest of oblivion. I went back into the house. Yes, Mary was lying there. I lifted her. Those same hands that had crushed the life out of her lifted her and carried her out into the sun. My eyes were so filled with tears that I could hardly see where I walked. People began milling about me. He's got a woman in his arms. Well, where's he carrying her? She must have fainted. No, look, he's dead. What? Who killed her? Huh? Hey, mister. 
Mister, who killed her? I did. Who killed her? I killed her. With my own hands, I killed her. And please, I want to die for And then the trial. My friends, they wanted to save me. Clever eternities, sanity commissions, and twists of the law. But I wanted to die. I tell you, I had to die. If they set me free, if I lived and died as most men die, the death they call a natural one, then she would have me. No, no. I want a hand by the neck until dead. I want that noose around my neck. The trap beneath my feet, the jailer pulls the switch. My feet dancing in air. The noose strangling me as my hands strangle Mary. Free for my cry but I'll be free. Free of that horror with the writhing lips and blood-stained teeth. Ladies and gentlemen, you have just heard the first play in a special series commemorating the fourth anniversary of Lights Out and starring Boris Karloff. Next week, Mr. Karloff will appear in another new air drama by Arch Obler, a play suggested by the Sibelius musical composition, Walt Triste. It is a story of death and a revenge beyond death. Listen to... Lights Out with Boris Karloff.
Lights Out, written especially for radio by Arch Obler, comes to you each Wednesday evening from our Chicago studios. This is the National Broadcasting Company. All right, everybody, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the show. We're going to be coming back to our normal rounds next week featuring a very special episode with myself, Tim Yobo, and Daniel Segura from the Mustachioed Podcastio reviewing the 1985 classic, I guess, Nailgun Massacre. And it is, it's an incredible episode, so... Make sure you stay tuned in. If you like what you heard tonight, check us out on the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash bloody bits so you can be a part of our radio streaming service and so much more. Just go take a look at everything that we have to offer. And until next time, this is how I end it.